You are listening to excerpts from the third annual meeting of the H.L. Mencken Club, held in Baltimore, Maryland, in October of 2010. The theme of this year's meeting was PC, the Future of an Illusion. We now present to you talks from the first panel of the conference. This panel was titled PC Around the World and features Grant Havers, Derek Turner, Ilana Mercer, and Sergio Trikovic. The third talk from this panel was titled South Africa, a Warning, and was given by Ilana Mercer. So why do WASP societies wither? Um, that's a topic I'd like to briefly, in the time allotted to me, explore. Uh, it is also a... Thanks. It is also a chapter in my book, a book I've just completed, the title of which, and I'm glad you're sitting, is Into the Cannibal's Pot, Lessons for the West from Post-Apartheid South Africa. Um, the book has been a mission completed after three years, and it's something of a personal mission because, um, as a Serbian scholar we have among us will tell you, when you come from a country that's been destroyed by this kind of WASP PC, a tyranny from within, um, you leave behind many casualties, family, friends. Since freedom came to South Africa, at least 300,000 um, people have died, been murdered in the ramp up to freedom. Um, I think Anne Coulter said something about Peter Brimler. Anne Coulter is, when she's right, she's right. It's a shame she doesn't often write about the things she's right about. She said that Peter Brimler left nothing to be said about immigration. And I'm, I'm sorry if any one of you has written about immigration, Peter Brimler has said it all. Um, similarly, Paul Godfrey has said everything about the conservative movement and the neoconservative uh, usurpers. Likewise, Steve Saylor has pretty much summed it up about Barack Obama's pigment burden, now ours. I hope in a saner and more sensible intellectual climate, into the cannibal pot, into the cannibal's pot will become a standard reference for when the forensics about my homeland, rest in peace, are done. But of course, more realistically, the awful works of is it Richard Stengel from the Time magazine, who serialized his tributes to Saint Mandela, those will probably be, become the standard text for South Africa. Continue. Now the book is, um, I would say, a Burkean manifesto, and as such it hues closely to reality, fact, and history. And if I have to sum it up in one line, it would be that it is a manifesto against mass society and democracy here, there, and everywhere. Against raw, ripe democracy. The content pages are outside. I've uh, compiled a handout, and I'd like you please to support this project by following the um, publishing woes of this book. 
I'm confident it will be published if I have to do it myself. Back to the PC tyranny. I think we euphemize or diminish what is really tyranny euphemized. In fiction, there is one reified ministry of truth, but in reality, we have many ministries of truth, and they all issue edicts every day, countless edicts. We have the academy, the intellectuals, the duopoly in America, and the many bobbleheads that represent them on television. And if you're anybody at all, you are marginalized, your books will not be published, you will be labeled and libeled, and in Canada, they will lunge for your property in the form of the Human Rights Commission. Section 13, a defendant is not even afforded traditional defenses of, I thought it was true, I didn't intend to harm. Back to the, back to the P, uh, PC tyranny. It is what is so unique about political correctness that I do hope we come up with a better term for what is out-and-out -out tyranny is that it arises from within. It is created by WASP societies. In the case of my own country, um, South Africa, South Africa was not killed. It, it didn't just die, it was killed by the Anglo American Australian axis of evil. That is another chapter in my book. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Now, some wag said that war is, is God's way of teaching Americans geography. <laughs> now, I believe it was Ambro, Ambrose Beers. The US, the US might not have had to teach South Africa um, its bumper crops of ignoramuses geography on the backs of South Africans, but it certainly doubled down in diplomatic warfare. A couple of culprits. You all know that when Ronald Reagan um, spoke gingerly about constructive engagement, the Republican Party, no less, issued coruscating attacks on him. One senator, whose name I'm not going to even bother to commit to memory, um, said that Ronald Reagan was an affront to American values. Then you had Bush Sr. in the ramp up to democracy, he informed um, President F.W. de Klerk, the treacherous President F.W. de Klerk, that he would like to see equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity for black South Africans. There was Herman Cohen, Under Secretary for State for Africa, and he made it very clear in the negotiations that no minority rights would be tolerated for the various minorities of South Africa. And of course, South Africa is not a multicultural country, much like the United States is not, was not. It is a biracial country with minorities like the Zulu minority, the Boers and the British. So Herman Cohen would not even um, countenance the ideas of devolution of power to the various regions of South Africa. Now it's quite one thing when you don't want to abide your own con constitution in your own country, 
but to insist that other countries not make use of it is quite outrageous. But this is what happened. A couple of good characters which were vilified in the West during these negotiations um, in, the, in, in the 90s, the early 90s, culminating in the democratic election in 1994, um, two Africans, one white, one black, one a gentleman and one a general, who was obviously a gen gentleman too. Both represent authentic um, indigenous authority as opposed to the African National Congress, which represents a Western ideology. The one was General Constant Filiun, and he was the former chief of the South African Defense Force. The other was Dr. Gacha Butelezi, the chief of the Zulus and the leaders. Two of these men planned on leading a coalition that was going to usurp the freelancing F.W. de Klerk, the president, and negotiate for self-determination. Of course, they were quashed, not the least by being vilified by Pravda on the Hudson, namely the New York Times. Gacha Butelezi was particularly hated in the West because here was a, um, a Zulu, an African leader, who had the annoying habit of referring to Western canon for, ins for his inspiration. Some time ago, Gacha Butelezi spoke about his own country in 2009 by quoting W.B. Yeats, The Second Coming. And he wrote very touchingly, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The New York Times would not countenance such, such inspirational writing, of course. So, um, Constant Filiun, as I said, planned on leading a coalition that would have deposed of F.W. de Klerk. Being a wasp, he of course didn't, and we'll get back to him a little later on. Now, it's very clear that the energetic intervention of the Americans in South African negotiations was inspired by the notion of a propositional nation. And it's worth repeating that the leaders like Constant Filiun and the Zulu leader, Gacha Butelezi, were authentic indigenous leaders, whereby the ANC was not. The ANC is of the West, I would argue. And in fact, my colleague, the Africana patriot, Dan Root, argues convincingly that American and ANC views on Africa have actually converged. I go further in my book and argue indeed that the ANC is of the West. Of course, the ideology of communism is of the West, not always implemented in the West. And I call what has emerged in my old homeland the notional Afro-Saxon nation. South Africa did have one plucky friend. It was not a very, it was a rather puny friend and a very un-PC friend in Israel. Of course, Israel had chosen barter over boycotts. And recently, one of those odious gender uh, academics with a gender-neutral double-barrel name, Sasha Polakov, something or other, um, published a book in 2010 
attesting to the bond between Israel and South Africa, the old South, orderly South Africa. It transpires that it was more than just a utilitarian bond whereby military information and military know-how was exchanged. In 1986, Yitzhak Shamir, who many of you would probably regard as a terrorist, he fought um, the British mandate in Israel um, in an organization called the Lehi. I, of course, regard him as a patriot, and I, I'm sure that many Boers um, came together with Israel on the, on the premise of hating the British intervention in their own independence. Yitzhak Shamir in 1986 spoke very touchingly about refusing, leaving entangling alliances to the great powers. His country, he said in New York in 1986, would continue to trade with South Africa. Minister of Defense Shimon Peres in 1974 wrote a, a letter that has recently been classified, was classified in 2010 in March, in which he spoke about the two countries' shared determination to resist their enemies and refuse to submit the, to the injustices against them. As I say again, I am convinced that the, the, the dislike for the British um, certainly formed um, a great part of the bond between the Boer and the Israelis in the 60s and the 70s. Sanctions, of course, did interfere and did, um, you know, make things very hard, but I wouldn't say they brought South Africa to its knees. We lived through those, those, those years and the country was prosperous, had a, had a pretty vibrant economy. Of course, due to accelerated transfer programs to the African population, the debt was increasing. But sanctions were not the thing that brought South Africa to its political knees. I would go further and say that South Africa surrendered without defeat. So the question remains, why then did the Afrikaner give up his birthright for a mess of pottage? After all, the white tribe of Africa was perhaps the fiercest tribe in Africa. It has 350 years on the continent, as long as its, Americans, its American Puritan cousins. So Arthur Conan Doyle dubbed the modern Boer the most formidable antagonist who ever crossed the path of Imperial Britain. But despite superior military prowess, Afrikaners simply surrendered, as I say, without defeat. I mentioned General Constant Filioun. When F.W. de Klerk, the president, was, going, was foregoing all checks and balances for South Africa's Boer, Zulu, and British minorities, Filioun said to General George Mehring, who was reigning the SADF chief, he said, you, me, and our men, we can take this country in an afternoon. They didn't. They dismantled six nuclear devices in Palandaba. So my conclusion invariably after studying the issue for three years, in agony because most of my family is in South Africa and the victims are just mounting. My conclusions are philosophical more than factual. The pathos 
of the Africana is the struggle to reconcile pietism with power. And I quote from a book called The Puritans in Africa by F.W. de Klerk, no relation to the treacherous president. He writes, the basic dilemma of Western man is how to reconcile power with justice. Those within the Calvinist Puritan ethic who secretly yearn for power find it impossible to do so openly and unashamedly. Naked power is not possible for Western Christian man, especially of Calvinist Puritan leanings. For Puritan man, the power, a quest very much alive, cannot be an open bid for supremacy, but rather has to be power acceptable on Christian terms. It must be power driven by a great ideal. The great ideal for the Africana was ineluctably tied with surviving and enduring as a biblically sanctified nation, as they believed they were. Apartheid was the super, political superstructure that was to afford this. It was a strategy for survival. You hear again and again that it was based on Nazism and racism, but anyone who studies the intellectuals from Stellenbosch who formed the policy and reads their readings and their, their thoughts, it comes, comes away from that with the understanding that this was a strategy for survival more than a racial ideology. So apartheid was the superstructure within which this biblically sanctified nation was to survive. But the great ideal turned into a nightmare. The people who fought Africa's first anti-colonial war became lords and masters in their own satrapies, over their own satrapies, namely the Bantustans. They were no longer biblically blessed, but they became outcasts, Ishmael. And this might seem petty, but for these South African Spartans, being banished from sparring in international sports was more than they could tolerate. Patriots that the Afrikaners are, they resented being expected to be ashamed of their country. Puritans that they are, the resentment soon turned inwards. So as an abstraction, the ostensive grand ideal of separate but equal development failed to reconcile power with justice. True to type, the Puritans of Africa relinquished the former to achieve the latter. I'd like to end with going back to General Mehring's response to Constant Filune's call to take back the beloved country before the ANC overtook it. General Mehring's response was thus, yes, that is so, but what do we do the morning after the coup? Celebrate is how the ANC would have replied. But then the ANC is unencumbered by the Puritans' thanatotic urges, namely their death wish. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the H.L. Mencken Club, visit the website at hlmencken.club.org. At the website, you can subscribe to the podcast and also find the full audio of the conference available for download per individual talk, including question and answer segments not heard here.